Hello and welcome to Test Podagogy. This is the podcast which brings you everything that you need to know about teaching and learning, produced by the editors and writers here at TES. We interview leading academics, start debates about pedagogy and take deep dives into some of the big issues facing classroom practitioners today. This season will bring you a wealth of new guests who will all shine a light on their research and how it translates into the classroom. We will also dig into our archive and bring you the best episodes from past seasons. These have all been chosen because they continue to have relevance for teachers today. I'm Kate Parker, a features writer at TES, and this week we're going back to 2018 when our editor, John Severs, sat down with Sarah Jane Blakemore. She's Professor of Psychology and Cognitive Neuroscience at the University of Cambridge and is also the co-director of the Wellcome Trust PhD programme in Neuroscience at the University College London. Her experience is vast, but in this episode, she discusses the complexities of the teenage brain. This conversation was recorded in her London office. To begin with, Blakemore explains that research around the brain has moved on significantly. When she was an undergraduate 25 years ago, it was thought that the human brain undergoes most of its development in early life and stops developing at some point in childhood. Today, however, we know that the human brain continues to develop throughout childhood, the teenage years, and even into our 20s and 30s. Blakemore and Severs discuss what this change in understanding means for how we look at education, and then they move on to how exactly Blakemore and her colleagues undertake research into teenage brains. Educators have known forever that, yeah. the, that children can learn and adolescents can learn. That's mm. the basis of education. Mm. So it's not as if anyone thought that you stopped being able to learn mm. after childhood. And actually that and plasticity, which is the neural basis for learning, happens throughout life. There is no age limit to neuroplasticity. We can learn a new skill or a new word or a new face at any age. Mm. The brain remains plastic throughout life. Um, so in some ways, you know, this this research uh, doesn't need to change teaching because teachers have always taught children and re- more recently have taught adolescents as well. And of course, there are lots of adult learners. Mm. On the other hand, what it does suggest is that the natural development of the brain, where the brain is being shaped and moulded by the environment and by environmental input like teaching and school environment, home environment, friendships, um, nutrition, exercise and everything else, uh, that natural development um, is happening for much longer than we ever thought. I think the main... Um, implication of this for teachers and even parents and teenagers themselves is that um, the changes that we all go through during our adolescence and they are really profound changes you know not just physical changes of puberty but also psychological changes in terms of the development of our self our self-identity and particularly our social self that is how other people see us and our relationships with other people these are things that are changing very dramatically during and slowly during adolescence they used to be put down to things like very big changes in sex hormones at puberty and also changes in the social environment like going from a little primary school to a big secondary school but we now understand those very substantial changes in psychology and behavior in terms of many different factors, including social 
factors and biological factors like hormonal changes and also the changes that are going on in the brain of teenagers. So when you're doing the research, do you, um, what, what are you looking for? Are you looking for, you know, when you MRI scan someone, give us an idea of how that process works, what you're looking for in terms of changes, not, not too technical, obviously, but in terms of how you know what's changing and, and what uh, impact yeah, those changes have? So with an MRI scan, we can use MRI to measure the structure of the brain and also how it functions. Um, so in terms of structure, we measure things like uh, the volume of grey matter the brain contains and the volume of white matter it contains. And we can look at how uh, that structure changes across the lifespan. We can also use functional MRI to look at how the brain changes in terms of its activity as you grow up. So activity, if I put you in a, a an MRI scanner and I get you to do a particular task, like, for example, I might get you to... Um, play a game that involves risk-taking or read stories about other people or think about your friends or make decisions when your friends are present compared to when they're not. And um, I can measure activity in your brain using MRI uh, during, during those tasks. And we can look at how activity in different areas of the brain changes as you get older throughout adolescence. And do you, um, how many sort of, children do you need to or people at the same age do you need to make a, a confident prediction of what what means what as such uh well the studies that we tend to do in this area and there are many different labs doing this kind of work uh looking at the structure of the brain the studies that are being done now largely involve um say hundreds of our participants who yeah. are scanned as they grow up so they're longitudinal studies um, scanning uh, children every couple of years as they go through adolescence and seeing how their brain changes. Um, we also do functional imaging studies. They tend to be with fewer participants, uh, maybe 20 uh, participants in each age group, and often they are cross-sectional, so they are comparing brain activity in different ages. Um, the, the, the gold standard <laughs> studies are longitudinal, where children are followed every couple of years as they grow up and large scale in other words that involve a lot of uh, participants and so one example of that uh, is the new ABCD project which is the Adolescent Brain and Cognitive Development Project in the US it's funded by the National Institute of Health and this is a study that has just started it's really exciting it is uh, following 10,000 9 to 10 year olds and measuring them every year for the next 10 years. The measurements are multiple. They involve um, psychological measures, behavioural measures of things like risk-taking and social behaviour and self-awareness, um, brain measures, hormonal measures, mental health measures, but also lots of measures of the environment, so things like um, their um, socioeconomic group and uh, what they spend their time doing, uh, social media, new technologies, that kind of thing. Wow, it's going to be a hell of a data set, that one will be. And the exciting thing about the data set is that it's completely open access, meaning that anyone can analyse it. The emergence of new research in this area, thanks to technological advances, means that the understanding of the brain is only going to deepen, especially when it comes to mental health, says Blakemore. This is more important today than ever, given the huge effect the pandemic has had on our young people's mental health. 
we are often asked questions whenever I give a talk about the adolescent brain. It's that you know the the questions I'm asked are things like the, the questions people are interested in, whether they're parents or teachers or adolescents themselves, are questions like why do some ch- adolescents develop mental health problems mm. and others don't? How why are some children resilient to mental health problems and others are, are more at risk in terms of their brain development? What we understand about their brain development and also other risk factors like social risk factors. Another question that people always ask is why, um, how do mobile phones and social media affect the developing brain? And these are kinds of questions that we don't really have answers to yet. Not definitive answers, for sure. And yet this uh, new ABCD project, which involves 10,000 9 to 10-year-olds being followed for 10 years, I think the exciting thing about that is it really has the possibility of providing answers about what, because it's longitudinal, about what predicts what. So what what um, factors in early adolescence, say, pre- are predictive of the development of me- mental health problems in mid-adolescence, mm. for example? Do you think if we, if we knew those risk factors better, there would be things we could put in place that are preventative? Or, or are... Is this more deterministic than that? Absolutely. I mean, that's why a lot of our work and a lot of my you know, colleagues' work is uh, looking at um, predictive factors. So what factors predict mental health problems? And the whole reason why, or one of the major reasons why we're interested in doing this is, in order, is for preventative mm-hmm. um, interventions. So if, if we under, in order to have a, preventative, a prevention of a mental health problem, you really need to understand what the risk factors are that um, precede the mental health problem. So you can order spot to, it emerging almost. Yeah, and you can stop it before it starts because at the moment we don't have that really. Mm. We have interventions that are helpful to young people and adults who have already developed a mental health problem like depression or anxiety or an eating disorder or an addiction, but we don't know how to prevent them before they start. Although what we know today about the human brain is radically different to what we did 25 years ago, there is still so much we don't know, says Blakemore. What we don't know is the mapping between um, a brain region being active in a certain, being used for a certain task, for example, Mm. and the cellular or um, synaptic processes underlying that. So we don't know, because MRI is, uh, gives us these very beautiful uh, high-resolution pictures of the living human brain, and because of that, they've, it, MRI scanning has revolutionised our understanding of the human brain, but it doesn't yet have the resolution to tell us anything about the brain at the level of the cell, like the neuron, say, mm. or the synapse, the connections between cells. And and actually, that, that places a limit on what we can understand about how the human brain uh, functions and how it develops. I guess then you're reliant on theories. I mean, one of the big theories in education at the moment that people are really cotton on to is anything to do with memory. So there's lots of stuff around memory at the moment, and this means that, and it's it's, it's spoken of in very factual ways. But mm. are, are, are we a sort of ahead of the evidence there? Are we still, with a lot of this stuff, still a sort of theoretical basis because we don't have that level of, uh, level of sort of microscopic analysis, I guess, or, or insight? There's definitely a gap between our understanding of how the human brain functions from MRI scanning and our understanding of how the brain functions at a cellular level. For example, memory is a good um, example of that because we know quite a lot about how uh, memory works in the human brain 
and how we put down new memories or how we learn new facts. Um, and we also know about how memory works in a, at a kind of cellular level um, from animal studies. I mean, John O'Keefe won the Nobel Prize recently for, um, well, a few years ago now, for his work on uh, spatial, spatial memory and spatial mm-hmm. navigation. And that largely came from animal studies uh, on, on um, the cellular basis mm-hmm. of, of memory. But putting those two things together is a lot harder uh, because we don't have the, the technology yet to look at cells and how they function in the living human brain. So much of academic research is applied in the classroom. And when it comes to key takeaways for teachers on her work, Blakemore says she wants the message to be that brain and behaviour undergo very substantial changes during adolescence. How that should change schooling and lessons is very unclear, actually. I think, you know, one one way it could is that information about how the brain changes during the teenage years is is really interesting and important for teenagers themselves to know about and understand. It is their brains that are changing. They have a kind of right to know about that and to understand their own... Um, changes in their own behaviour and their own self-consciousness, for example. Um, at the moment, you know, that, that is absolutely not on the curriculum, but maybe it would be nice that, to to think about how to uh, educate teenagers about their, their own brain changes. Um, teachers and parents often find it useful to understand the teenagers that they're working with or looking after in terms of the natural and adaptive development that their brains are undergoing um, yeah, but I mean, we don't, our, our research isn't really um, aimed to be, um, be applied in that way. Well, not really. And there's nothing really specific. Unlike, you know, there are other researchers who do work that's related where you can really see an application. For example, colleagues of mine who work on uh, sleep in adolescence and how sleep changes after puberty or circadian rhythms change after puberty so after puberty um young people and also it's not just people but also animals um uh shift their circadian rhythm so that they're uh, less tired early in the evening so they find it hard to go to bed very early and they're also more tired therefore in the early morning and find it hard to get up for school um and that you know that that has has made it into the kind of narrative about school start times and although it's very tricky to consider changing school start times because there's such a big social consequence of that for for teachers and parents wanting to go out to work for example but you know that is something that we are having a policy discussion about now and that's come from basic research on circadian rhythms and puberty Um, but that's not my research uh, if I give you an example of how someone was talking to me about how they'd use their research, they'd actually changed the way they looked at behaviour in their school. Yeah. Because before it was uh, quite punitive and quite, mm. you know, that that child is acting out out of choice because they want attention or mm-hmm, X, Y, Z. Mm-hmm. And they said after looking through your work, they 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 recognised that actually it was it was a degree of risk taking behaviour. It was a degree of emotional misunderstanding like you said about themselves mm. it was a confusion about why they're behaving certain way themselves which is manifesting as, as anxiety as um acting up essentially mm. is that a leap to 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 interpret your work in that way i don't think so i mean i think if it get if it gives people a more sort of sympathetic view of why teenagers are behaving um in a certain way like taking risks or being influenced by their friends 
or um, uh, um, I mean, there are all, all sorts of behaviours that change during the teenage years, then that is no bad thing, actually. And in some ways, one of the messages of my research and the, 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 the uh, papers we write and the, the book that I just wrote is that we should be more understanding of, of teenagers, of this really critical, important period of development. Mm. And so if that is, if, if our research is being used to try to be more understanding and supportive of, of teenagers and the profound changes they're going through, then, then that can only be a good thing. Um, one, one example is how um, masses of research from my lab and other people's labs has shown that um, the prefrontal cortex and functions that rely on the prefrontal cortex, like planning and decision-making um, and thinking about the consequences of action, all of those behaviours and their, the brain regions that they rely on are undergoing very protracted, slow and substantial change during adolescence. Um, and yet, what I find interesting is that once a child goes through puberty and kind of looks more like an adult, you know, yeah. looks really tall and adult-like, then we do place quite high expectations and we put a lot of pressure on, on young people to do their, all their own planning and make all their own decisions and make the right decisions. But actually the, the, the brain regions that are involved in planning and decision-making, uh, and we know that planning and decision-making behaviourally undergoes uh, is still very much in development during adolescence, so maybe we should be a bit more supportive around that. Blakemore goes on to discuss a project called Myriad, which she is doing in conjunction with Mark Williams and William Kuyken at the University of Oxford, as well as Tim Dalgleish from the University of Cambridge. Broadly, the project looks at whether or not mindfulness has benefits for mental health in schools. It is still ongoing, with results expected in 2023. And it is the biggest study of young people and mindfulness to date. Uh, what's interesting, I think, is that mindfulness has already received a lot of attention and it's quite popular, e even in schools. Mm. Like my children's school has mindfulness classes. But it hasn't been through proper randomised control trials. So we don't know. I mean, we... we we hope that it might be beneficial for children, and especially in schools where they're already doing mm. mindfulness. We don't actually know. There's been no really large-scale systematic study of the benefits of mindfulness, and that really needs to be done, which is why we're doing it. Why might it work? I mean, is there a, is there a biological reason why <coughs> being mindful would, would, would ease anxiety and depression and, and other factors? Yeah, I mean, that comes from the adult literature on mindfulness, which has been shown to be very useful for preventing um, relapse of depressive episodes in adults. Okay. Um, and there's a very, very big literature on that, and there's a lot of explanation as to how. And, um, I mean, there are many different aspects of mindfulness, but the one that we're really interested in and the one that, um, that we're looking at in my group is um, attentional control and, okay. and the way you can, um, if you practice mindfulness a lot, it can be beneficial in terms of, being able to kind of control your attention and bringing your attention back from whatever kind of ruminative or negative thought you might be having back to your breathing or your body. Um, and if you do that a lot and you practice it, then that becomes more kind of natural and everyday. And so the idea is that you, you centre yourself away from the external 
things going on in the environment which might trigger these it's, it's thoughts. almost distraction from what's caught the cause of the the, the anxiety <laughs> Um, well, that's one way. That's one way. But there are also many other different aspects of mindfulness, um, like self-compassion, uh, being more compassionate about your your actions and your thoughts. And that's something actually that I think has received a lot less uh, attention because one one of the issues about mindfulness is that it's a eight or ten week program, um, and it involves many many different elements. And what what hasn't been done and actually what we're not yet doing is disentangling which element of mindfulness has an effect if it has an effect which part of the mindfulness is it is it the whole is it like the whole you have to do the whole thing and all those elements in combination is what is useful or is it one aspect of the mindfulness and it's something that we're interested in looking at actually when it comes to interacting with teenagers then Blakemore says that we need to remember that they aren't adults and their seemingly irrational behaviour is part of their natural development. I think it is, well, I mean, when I was a teenager, nothing was known about teenage brain development. And I look back at my own teenage years and I think that it would have been really quite useful to know that all the changes in terms of kind of the psychological changes and the changes in self-awareness and things like self-consciousness being you know really embarrassed easily embarrassed particularly in front of my parents that kind of thing and so self-conscious about what other people might be thinking about me or talking about me uh, as all a very natural part of neurocognitive development (laughs) that was not known back then and that would have been useful and so when I work with teenagers or my own teenagers um, I try to you know remember that just like just like when you're interacting with your very young children mm. you don't expect them to act like adults they're little yeah. toddlers <laughs> you don't expect them to be rational no. and you don't expect them to you can see that they're very little and they've got a very underdeveloped brain and you wouldn't expect them to mm. make their own decisions or plan their own day and in some ways and of course you know teenagers brains are much more developed than very young children's brains but they're still not fully adults yet and it's worth remembering that so if you have if you have teenagers who I mean the, the you know the, the classic sort of way that we have thought about teenage behaviour throughout history if you look back at descriptions of teenage behaviour from Aristotle mm. and Socrates they focus on this kind of irrational behaviour um, where uh, young people are impulsive and make bad decisions Shakespeare as well and we mm. we often focus on these kind of negative behaviours and we see it as irrational but actually it's if you think about it in terms of the development of the brain it's not irrational at all it's just part and parcel of this very natural biological development is there a in, in the sense that is, is it a weird thing to do then to, to put 30 of these these slightly not volatile is the wrong word but these these beings that are changing quite a lot into a classroom in a very strict structure it, it strikes me that there's a lot of stuff going on there in that in, in that in that in that environment. Is that healthy? Or is, I mean, obviously you can't say unequivocally. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I have no evidence on this, so it's hard to talk about it. But it is interesting to think about whether, if you were designing from scratch, the optimal way to educate young people, would it look like the way we set up our classroom structures and our curriculum curricula today? Mm. Um, given that you know, if, I, I'm always. I find it interesting that classrooms haven't really changed much at all for yeah. hundreds of years. So it's, it feels like, we, well, they must work, but I'm not sure we've ever really tested an alternative. Yeah. 
And it is an interesting question. I always think that maybe, you know, it should be teenagers themselves should perhaps be involved in the design of classrooms and teaching structures. I guess systemically it's hard to hard to go back, row back from that. As you say earlier with the sleep times, that the structures that are in place now are, are so, I mean, it permeates through everybody's lives, you know, schools that time, because that's basically childcare in a way. Mm. And, you know, the structure of the year is based on stuff like that as well. So it's a huge leap, mm. but I guess sleep might be a good one because there are schools that are starting to shift. There are. And the interesting question is whether, what outcomes that has. Mm. So school, some schools in the US and in the UK, but I think the US is a really good example because actually their school start times are much earlier mm. and lessons start at 7.30 and often children have had a very long journey to get there. So they're you know waking up really early mm. to get their yellow school bus to get yeah. them to school on time. And so in, in the US, quite a lot of states are, um, are experimenting with shifting school start times to a bit later. What we don't know, though, is the outcome. Does that improve educational outcomes and socio-emotional outcomes of those young people? And there are studies that are currently um, ongoing to look at that, but I don't think they have any answers yet. In all of this stuff, then, as a last question, do we always have to bear in mind the trade-off in the sense of the sleep one? You know, what's the trade-off between the benefit of the later start time and the upheaval of the work day and all the other moments of that? And whether it's behaviour, whether it's the memory research that prioritises one or the other... Do we have to have a, a holistic view of that as, as not seeing it simply as you know, a robotic student and these are the inputs and we'll get those outputs? Is it always going to be a little bit messy? Well, you know, one part of schooling is helping young people develop so that they can become independent. I mean, that's what adolescence, the period of adolescence is all about, gradually becoming an independent adult. And so school, part of the purpose of school is um, allowing young people to learn how to be independent and learn how to function in in society. So you can't have school looking too radically different from <laughs> yeah. what they're going to end up in, which is, you know, working probably during the daytime. Um, on the other hand, I do think we have a lot to learn. We tend to be very resistant to change when it comes to, well, pretty much everything, but, in, yeah. but including education and um and we do have a lot to learn, and we can we can learn things things from, for example, other countries. That's a, that's something that, you know, there's a lot of data on different types of schooling from different countries around the world. Um, one example, which is not not relevant to adolescence, but one example is um, formal when you start formal education. Mm. In this country, we start formal education very very early, age three or four. Children are starting to learn to read and write. And that's not the case in other countries, like, for example, Scandinavian countries, where they might wait, wait until a child's seven before mm. they do their first lesson of reading and writing. And interestingly, you know, educational attainment is, surpasses um, uh, uh, um, our children's educational attainment by about age 10 in those countries. So there's no, there's no sort of scientific, evidential benefit to the, the earlier start time? <clears throat> I think that's exactly the way to put it. It's too strong to say, therefore, you know, we must, it, it, starting formal education later is definitely a good thing. It's just that there's no evidence that starting it earlier is beneficial. Mm. On the other hand, education is very complex. And for example, I, I, you know, I'm aware that there's lots of reasons why you might want very young children in school other than just teaching them early. Mm. There might be lots of social reasons why you want to um, allow very young or, uh, you know, have very young children in, in school settings um, so it's not just about 
formal education. And like you said, it's much more complicated than that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tez Podgogy. Please join us again next week when we will be joined by Dominic Wise, a professor of early childhood and primary education. Today's episode of Tez Podagogy was written and hosted by Kate Parker. If you're interested in accessing all of our education news coverage, you can now get a digital magazine subscription for just £3 for three months. It's available on tez.com forward slash store.